If you would take your Bibles, please, and turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. As we continue our study in Nehemiah, we should remember the following. First of all, it is that Nehemiah was a man of prayer and serves as an example for us, both over the long haul and in the brief moment when we face certain matters as we go through the day. And there was no presumption on the part of Nehemiah that God should give him what he asked for. There's no sense that I'm praying, therefore you must respond as uh, I wish. Secondly, Nehemiah was a man of preparation. We see this in his answer to the king, what is it that you want? Uh, And after a brief private internal prayer, Nehemiah lays out a plan. The overall project, the timeline involved, the needed documents, because he's going to be traveling, as well as the needed supplies. When he arrives in Jerusalem, he makes a nighttime survey, inspection of the walls and the gates before the work began. Nehemiah was a man who not only prayed, but was prepared. One could make the argument that oftentimes we find in our lives a pattern in which we pray when we're not prepared, or we do not pray when we are prepared. I don't know if there's a formula as such between how much a student prays before an exam and the amount of studying he or she has done before that exam. It seems oftentimes there's a certain amount of desperation in the prayers if in fact they have not prepared. This often seems to be the case, and I think in part because we don't like being dependent, except when it can't be helped. We want to be self-sufficient, but when we can't be, then we call out to God for help. Somehow we, we imagine that we can handle X amount of things, and I leave the X up to you, however amount it is for you. Uh, and only when we come to things that we can't handle, then we turn to God in prayer. Something involved here, and that is how we view prayer. If we see prayer simply as asking, then I think we have a really impoverished, a very thin view of prayer. In chapter 1, we are given a portion of Nehemiah's prayer. Uh, Let me read it to you in chapter 1, verses 5 through uh, 11. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands... Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. In this prayer, we find that it begins with an acknowledging of who God is. There is an invocation, there is worship here. This is saying, this is who you are. And then, secondly, who we are, it's a confession of sin. 
I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself, Nehemiah says. Then there is a request for God to remember his people and his covenant. And lastly, then there is that specific prayer request for success in this particular endeavor. We are to be people of prayer, but we are also to be people who are prepared. And if you think about it, do we not see this in Jesus? We read of him praying all night before he chose the twelve disciples. We read of him praying one night and then joining his disciples when he walked on the water at the Sea of Galilee. At some point after choosing the twelve, we read in Mark 1, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let, them go, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Think in Jesus we see someone who doesn't simply say, I've got this covered, I can do this, I'm prepared. We see someone who engaged in prayer. And I think far more than we do. The third thing we saw was the, the extent of people's participation. Everyone was in their place and next to them was someone else. We find 27 times, at least 27 times, we see this phrase, next to, next to. And so beginning at 12 o'clock, as we saw last week, all the way around the wall, there are people who are assigned to take care of this place. And many of them worked near where they lived, so they were personally invested, but some of them were not from Jerusalem. And they worked anyway. We saw that no matter what their vocation was, they worked on rebuilding the wall. But we also saw that not everyone got involved that the leaders from Tekoa did not get involved. But it doesn't stop the work from going forward. And neither does the opposition. What we hear, what we saw last week, from their enemies is scorn and ridicule combined with contempt. And how does Nehemiah respond? In two ways. With prayer and with work. If you look at chapter 4, verses 4, 5, and 6. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised, Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. So I mentioned last week they responded with prayer and with work. I mentioned this last week, but we didn't look at the prayer, and I want to do that now. Our first reaction, if you read verses 4 and 5, is this does not sound like a proper prayer. This doesn't sound like a prayer that should be prayed by one of God's people, let alone a leader, Nehemiah, who is leading this project. He's a man of prayer. And we would say, well, a man of prayer should not pray this way. What we find here is referred to by theologians as an imprecatory prayer, a prayer which calls, God, calls down God's judgment on one's enemies. We have psalms that are dedicated to this, or portions of it. Uh, just to give you a list, Psalm 7, 35, 58, 59, 69, 83, 109, 137, 139. We have these prayers that for us as people after the New Testament seem entirely inappropriate. They just don't seem right. Jesus said, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
and later in the Sermon on the Mount, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Paul wrote to the Romans, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. That last part, it is written, that's from Deuteronomy chapter 32. There's several things I think we need to consider with regard to Nehemiah's prayer. First of all, the imprecatory prayers call for vindication. There isn't vindictiveness. Vengeance is placed in the hands of God. Nehemiah is very clear. Lord, you do this to them. It's not something that he and the Jews are going to do personally to them. Secondly, for Nehemiah, the basis of his prayer is the Abrahamic covenant. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I think you could make the case that what Nehemiah is praying is that God would fulfill the promise he made to Abraham. These people are, in fact, cursing the descendants of Abraham and Nehemiah is basically saying you promised Abraham that whoever cursed you would be cursed we're asking that you keep your covenant the third thing is I think we really need to consider what judgment is I think this is where most of us trip up in Psalms 98 and 96 which are wonderful uh, Psalms speak of God's creation, they really end on a rather strange note, at least for me, somewhat troubling. In Psalm 96, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the seas resound in all that is in it, let the fields be jubilant and everything in them, then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. This sounds wonderful. The last verse, they will sing before the Lord for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the earth in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. It seems to have made a sharp left turn there from the sort of wonder of creation to God judging. And then Psalm 98, let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. To think of creation that's rejoicing at the Lord's coming to judge the world runs counter, I think, to what we think creation should be doing. Unless we understand what judgment is. If we say judgment is condemnation, then yes, we have a problem. We have a serious problem. But if we see judgment as correction and making things right, then perhaps we need to step back a bit and consider what it is that we've been thinking. Several examples come to mind as I was preparing this. You know, when I grade papers, when I correct papers, to refuse to mark an incorrect answer as wrong uh, is not a sign of affection. It, in fact, does not help the student. When I mark the, the answer wrong, I make a judgment. But it is to help the student know, oh, this is wrong, there is a correct answer, and apparently this isn't it. I'm not loving my students if, in fact, I fail to correct their mistakes. In correcting children, 
one essentially says to the child, this is wrong, this is what you should do. And to love them requires that we discipline, we correct them. See, if Nehemiah was to say, oh, sad ballot, Tobiah, what you yeah, don't worry about it. I love you, you're my brothers. Then they're going to continue doing what they're doing, which is wrong. So the prayer is for God to correct them. It is an appropriate prayer. As many of you know, I recently had a minor surgery uh, as a result of a biopsy. The biopsy came back. The doctor said, this is cancer. This is malignant. We need to take care of it. Um, he did not hide the truth from me. And when he told me what it was, I didn't say, well, that's rather judgmental of you to make such a pronouncement. It is, in fact, to say this is what's wrong. It needs to be corrected. And in Nehemiah's prayer, that is what he's doing. He sees the problem as something that needs to be corrected and corrected by God. And so he prays to God to correct this. We are to love our enemies, but this does not mean that we cannot correct, that we should not pray that God will correct them and judge them, not condemn them, but to correct them. It's a huge difference. So, as I mentioned last week, Nehemiah responded with prayer and work. Today the psychological attack seems to have failed. The enemies of the Jews are angry and they begin to plot another strategy. So if you would look at Nehemiah chapter 4, uh, verse number 7. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. See, their, their efforts at destabilizing, at demoralizing the Jews have failed. They have reached half the height, we read in verse number 6. So they've done really quite well. By the way, what they've done is quite remarkable in a short period of time. We don't know how long, but we will see in chapter 6 that in 52 days they finished the whole wall. So if they're halfway... 26 days uh, it may be that the second half was harder than the first half but on the other hand the first half they had to deal with the rubble as we'll see in a few minutes they had to clear it out uh, in any case Sanballat et al are very angry and by the way the et al the people with him the number is growing it started out with Sanballat the Horonite Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab and now we read that the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod have joined in the opposition. This means that Jerusalem is surrounded because you have Sambalat in Samaria to the north, you have the Arabs to the south, you have Tobiah to the east, the Ammonites, and finally Ashdod is on the coast, the Mediterranean coast, that's to the west. The Jews are surrounded by people who oppose them. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. Uh, some translation, I think the ESV has to cause confusion. They def desperately wanted to cause confusion. They conspire, but they have to be careful because Nehemiah is a government official. He has papers from the king. He was very close to the king. The king has okayed this project. If they go against it, they might be seen as going against the king. And therefore, they have to be really careful at what they do. They don't want to be accused of rebellion. So if they could just get the project slowed down or destabilized, well, they'll, they'll stop. That's happened before. If we can just get it to stop. Uh, 
So how do the Jews respond? If you look at verse number 9. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Again, we see this in Jeremiah. Uh, sorry, in Nehemiah. It's neither. It's not either or. We should either pray or work. It's both and. We are going to pray and we are going to work at the same time. We look to God in prayer, but we should also take necessary action. There is the famous medieval motto, "Ora at labora." Ora et labora. Sorry. Pray and work. The monks live their lives by this motto. Uh, it's a delicate matter though because how much should we pray? How much should we depend on our own efforts? Uh, oftentimes we do things and we think, well, this is what the Lord wants done and we haven't really prayed. Uh, but in the midst of crisis, the response is to pray and to work. But then a new set of problems uh, arise. Verse number 10. And this I think we should expect. There's fatigue. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. It's a wonderful verse because we're not given an idealized view of these people. They're not superhuman. They're not robots. They wear down. They've been worn down by the opposition, the psychological opposition the physical demands of the work. They are tired, but they're only halfway through. There's much yet to be done. And it would seem at this point that the task seems frankly impossible. It cannot be finished. It's here, by the way, that we have a sense that they're not simply rebuilding a wall. They have to clear out all the rubble so that they can get to the place and then they can, in fact, rebuild the wall. Titus and I have talked uh, often about the prep work that needs to be done before the actual task is done. And oftentimes the prep work takes longer and is more demanding. So they're clearing out the rubble while they're trying to build the wall and the people are exhausted. I think their initial enthusiasm is waning. They are tired. The opposition, the physical tiredness, they're reaching almost a breaking point. And then there's something else in verses 11 and 12. The word of a possible secret attack. Also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them, that is near the enemies, came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Again, this is more psychological warfare, uh, I think more than anything else, they've told us ten times over. It's being repeated. People are beginning to panic. Uh, before you know it, before you see us, we will be there and we will kill you. What do you do? Well, Nehemiah comes up with a new strategy. Verses 13 and 14. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords spears and bows after I looked over things I stood up and said to the nobles the officials and the rest of the people don't be afraid of them remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers your sons and your daughters your wives and your homes Nehemiah doesn't simply pray he posts guards at exposed places where the enemy would most likely attack 
He does so by families or by clans, the ESV tells us. The people have swords, they have spears, they have bows. Nehemiah tells them, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Fight for your families. I find it striking that Nehemiah tells them, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Because this is how his prayer in chapter 1 began. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. How is it that God is awesome and great? He keeps his covenant. He keeps his love for those who love him and obey his commands. It is the Lord who stands with them. Again, I thought of Titus in this regard with the songs of ascents. I think one of the first ones he spoke on that I remember is Psalm 124. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side, when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird out of the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. It's a song, a psalm of David. 127 is of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, the the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. How true this is. But you need guards, you need watchmen to stand watch. The people need to be ready. For their brothers, their sons, daughters, their wives, their homes, they need to be ready to fight. And then we read in verse number 15. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. Nehemiah is a wise and practical leader who made good strategic moves in response to opposition. But he is quite clear who it is that frustrated the enemy's plot. It is the Lord who has done this. Now we come to the last part of chapter 4. And this ever-practical leader makes a fourth counter-move. In this one chapter, in chapter 4, we find him responding uh, to the opposition of his enemies. He's not going to fight this new battle with old tactics. At first, their taunts have been met with prayer and concentrated work. Then their plots were met with prayer and guard duty. Then stronger threats were made with a charge and instructions. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Fight for your family, your enemies. I'm sorry. Fight for your families. Now there is a lull. The enemies have backed off. Everything seems cool. It's a chance to start rebuilding again, but not in the same way. Nehemiah will not be put or kept in a reactive mode, crisis management, where he's waiting for a crisis to emerge so that he can come up with a strategy. He devises a plan that is. Proactive, if you wish. Before the enemies can do anything again, he and his people will be prepared. He devises a plan to thwart any military offensive. And what we find is a division of labor. Some doing double duty, working and providing defense. Look, if you would, beginning in verse number 16. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah, 
who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and carried a weapon or held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. So he puts a warning system in place. Verse 19. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. Yes, he has an alarm system, a warning system. Wonderful thinking on his part. But very clear, if they are going to have any success, it will be because our God will fight for us. And then what do you do in the meantime? Work, work, work. Verse 21. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. Here at the end of the chapter we find it. we should not be surprised that Nehemiah leads by example. He continues to work from the first light of dawn until the stars come out. Neither he or his brothers or any of his men took off their clothes. They stayed clothed the whole time. They kept their weapons ready. They were ready to fight if necessary. In this chapter, in the story of Nehemiah, we find that opposition is met by both faith, as demonstrated in prayer, and hard work. I think we would rather do one or the other. The idea that we would do both just seems a bit much. So that when we think, I don't know about you, but when I think of people of prayer, I don't necessarily think of hardworking people. And when I think of hardworking people, I don't necessarily think of people of prayer. And that is wrong on my part. We see this here in Nehemiah. But in fact, do we not see this in the Lord Jesus? Do we not see this in the Lord Jesus? The problem, again, as I said earlier, is our view of prayer. If we think that prayer is simply asking, 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 then yeah, we're going to have problems. But if we see it as a conversation, God has spoken to us in our lives, in our circumstances, in scripture, and now we respond to him. If nothing else, we say thank you. Thank you for what you've given us. In the Lord Jesus, we see a man who was devoted and dedicated to prayer. It's like, why? You've got it made. You're the second member of the Trinity. You're the son of God. It's part of a conversation. God has his part, we have our part. And I think prayer helps us to remember that. But it's difficult, I confess, because I think we we vacillate, we go to one or the other. Either we will spend time in prayer or we will just handle it ourselves. But to do both at the same time, it takes work. And we see it in Nehemiah. A man who had a plan, and when the king said, what is it you want? In that moment, he doesn't say, I've got this covered. He prays, and then he speaks. He prays, and then he works. And by God's grace, that's what we should do as well.
Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of prayer, one that I suspect we often take for granted, or that we really thin out and we see it as merely asking. We fail to acknowledge who you are. That's a great and awesome God. Unless we're really, really desperate, then somehow we try to butter you up. Instead of worshiping you and bowing before you, acknowledging your greatness and our sinfulness, in the midst of that we can ask. But we're also to work. You've given us gifts. Each one here has particular gifts. They're from you. We are to use them as people of prayer. By your Spirit, help us to think on these things. And not to be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. We pray for those that aren't with us today, for Dan and Lonnie up in Alaska, Tim and Kim in Yosemite, seeing the wonders of your creation. Bring them back to us safely. And in a particular way, in a special way, we pray for the children of this congregation. For Marcus, who is in kindergarten. For Gracie, who's in preschool. For Gracie and Addie, who are being homeschooled. You would watch over them and protect them. Guide them. Guide those who teach them. May they learn the things they need to learn. And grow into people that honor and worship you. Help them as they learn basic skills, as they learn their alphabets, their numbers, things like that. And may they have a sense in their own way that you are with them. As we go through the world this coming week, may we have a sense that it is the Lord who has done this. You are the one who stands by us. You protect us. You provide for us. And above all, you love us. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.